Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm super excited. My guest today is Chris Nee. Chris is the creator and showrunner of Doc McStuffins and Vampirina. Am I pronouncing you Vampirina are. correctly? You are. You're one of the few people. And uh, you may not know these shows, but if you have young kids, you know these shows. I am personally blown away to be sitting with somebody who wrote an episode of Blues Clues. Yeah, yes, I did. But also Higleytown Heroes. Yes, I wrote quite a few Higleytown Heroes. Uh, and often in very odd situations. I wrote... Um, I've had a very weird career, but there was a period where I was a producer on the first season of Deadliest Catch. Yeah, I'm, gonna, yeah, I ask yeah, you I'm about sure that. you're getting there. But I used to like uh, sit in a bar on the island of Unalaska with Mike Rowe, and we would like drink ourselves silly, and then I would be like, I have to go back to my room because I'm writing a backyardigans, right? And and I would literally go back and like write. I think I I wrote the the Wonder Pets Christmas special in that hotel. I have to write a backyardigans <laughs> might be my new expression for a French exit. Don't, 100%. Yes, it I is. Have, I have to leave uh, a party. But also Chris, you and I have a very modern relationship in in that we're friends who don't know each other. I, I was just telling someone as I was coming over here that we are part of a group of um of people who all work in the business, who are writers, who Sometimes email each other yeah, when like we an, have an email chain of people who do what we do. Exactly, basically. and and uh, and then sometimes it gets kind of personal as you're dealing with issues that are personal that relate to work. And the thing is, it's all writers. It's some of the best writers in the business, and that's where I think it's different than like we met online because we're all incredibly adept at expressing ourselves through the written word. Well, and then well, you certainly are. But then we're also all on Twitter or exactly. Facebook. We're all on social media together and if one if if you had a question because you were trying to negotiate with somebody and I have a friend who's done that yes. you'll get connected with that person and it's a great network but as a result of that there's an intimacy even though we've never met face to face no this is the first time it's and great. oh my god you're adorable oh that's so sweet as are you thank you you're a rock star um, yeah I do I mean my whole thing about uh, looking to other people who are in your profession profession and um, I I have such a strong belief in finding someone who is, and early on in your career, who is somehow equal to you. And I always call them a salary buddy. Um, that's how it started for me, was a salary buddy. I had a guy, and we tended to be the two people who were, and I was really glad after the fact, that it happened to be a male species, pers person of the species, that I was comparing myself to. But we tended to pass our jobs back and forth over a period of years. And we, uh, we, we were shooting the shit one day, and we'd made a pact that we would always tell each other our deals in full. Not the thing where you're like, I have a good deal. It's pretty good. It's a little more. And you're, and you're just not being explicit about what it is. Um, and we and we did that for every job thereafter. We told each other every single point in our deal, every dollar, every everything. And sometimes it would be hard for the person on the lower end. But at the end of the day, it always told me what I, what I, the, the, the weird things that I didn't know to ask for. And it always ended up helping each of us be have stronger deals and make more money. Did he become successful too? He did, and and we still do that to this day. Um, it's great. I have a couple yeah. friends. Uh, he'll be fine with me. John Hamburg, Dave, oh. and I have who I play poker with. John, who, which is a real relationship. He's, he's. I've taken a lot of money off that man. He's, he's it's okay. He's, he's not okay. that good at poker. Yes, <laughs> really. but, it's true. But he has always uh, outstripped Dave and me. But. Uh, but we would always we're the, we would always talk to each other yes. about deals. Yes, and it's really helpful. Derek and I talked yeah. to Derek about deals too. Yeah, 
Um, and the dark people helps who can tell them. You the truth. Yes, the dark tells helps them, and and being honest, and it can be really hard. I mean, I've had some places where I've worked very hard to to kind of change some of the nature of some of the deals that I've been in because I thought they were truly unfair to the creators, and I very. Um, consciously made a decision to literally call initially all the people I knew, still a hard conversation, and then and then calling up people I didn't really know and saying, I would like to have lunch with you. This may be a hard conversation, but I think it's going to help you in the long run. And I would just sit down and say, I'm going to tell you, this is going to sound really weird, I'm going to tell you exactly how much money I make. Right. Um, and and I have a feeling it's, it's not going to be a fun afternoon for you, um, but it's going to it's going to change what you know it is, so, is out there. And all of those guys so have made yes, so valuable. So valuable. I, I have a, a friend in, an, in another industry. I have to say this in a circumspect way. But I have a friend in another industry who is quite successful, incredibly successful business person. And when Dave and I were closing a deal at one point, even our agents were telling us to close the deal at X. And I just had this weird feeling and I spoke to this friend of mine yes. who really understands business. And yeah. this person just said, you're getting underpaid yeah. by this number. And it was a big fucking number. Yeah. And they were all saying yes to it. Yes. And I said, how do you know? And this person said, well, I, I know because I, I understand your business because I've been adjacent to it in certain yeah. ways. Here's what you need to ask for. And I, I called this agent and I said, you have to go ask for this. And the agent's like, they will never. And I said, hang up with me call, say this to them, which is what my friend said to say. Right. Within a day, that deal was done at that number. And it, it's, a, it's a number that was a 30% more That's right. than I would have signed for, 30% more. Right. But you know what? Oh, I have two things I want to say. One is <laughs> I, I actually am not the person who – like that was a moment where, there, where, where we were pushing back on a certain part of our deals in a way – there was there was an inherent unfairness, and now I feel like it's it's up to other people to pass that forward. I'm not actually that person who I, my salary buddy, sure. Um, but if you think about it, it is the same principle behind the sense of you can't be it if you can't see it. It's all about visibility, and and you can take that and then sort of extrapolate it to what we do in terms of trying to put people on screen. But it is the same thing if you don't know you. It's the classic, you know, you don't know what you don't know. You need to go on death, sex, and money. Do you know? That podcast and a no. sales podcast. No, I, I'm introducing you. Right. Uh, but Louise, her podcast, the premise of, of it is that people don't talk about death, sex, and money. Yes, and, that's right. Uh, and she will. She tells these incredible stories. Yes, about these things, and it's crucial be, because. And, and it's weird when you're in jobs like ours. Now you're a whole industry now because you have toys and figures, and yeah. you're an industry. Yeah. But even if you're someone who's just a creator of a Sunday night show, you're making an, uh, enough money that it's uncomfortable to talk about. Yes. Most of the time. Yes. I mean, I don't. I would never tell people. Oh, I would I never tell other. Yeah, just to be very living. clear, not no, other people. But peers, like, I would if they yes. needed to know because they were in a similar yes situation. But beyond that, we all, whether we're making too much or too little, we're so um, we, some part of ourselves, even as we redefine ourselves, yes, in so many other ways. Yeah. We are, we still feel defined in some sense by what we earn. Oh, a hundred percent. And and as someone who really grew up feeling a, a black sheep, and actually growing up in a in a family where I, I grew up in a business family, I grew up in a family that the ethos was um, entrepreneurship, and um, and I always it, it, a really turn a turn point in my life 
was when I realized that I was an entrepreneur and I, 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 and, and that I was a business person and that in fact, inherently what we do is believe in ourselves, uh, figure out a plan of what we want to go sell to someone. We sell it to them. Even if it's to be a staff writer, you're selling yourself for that job in that room. You're negotiating that small term thing and you're plotting out. That's different from the, than working at a bank. It just is. And so I, I used to think I wasn't like my family. And the moment I realized I was, I became in, much more proactive in the, uh, in the sense of the business of what I do, and I do believe at the end of the day, look, I am an other in many ways. I am a, I'm a woman. I'm a gay woman. I happen to actually be a rather butch gay woman, and I'm, I'm very much on the outside of what the norm is. And it matters to me, not only do I, sure, it's nice to make the money, it matters to me that I demand what I know other people know how to demand. Right. Yeah, that makes complete sense to me. You you just hinted at a bunch of stuff that I want to talk to you about and that I, I wrote down to discuss. Uh, I'd say you, you build yourself up as, as being very butch more than you are in real life. Like, I remember you said when you watched the Hannah Gadsby oh, thing, funny. you were like, I look just like her and I have the same... You're, you're like, no. You're, no, that's just not true. <laughs> just factually not true. Um, but that's self... That's that's also your self perception that you grow up with. I mean, coming, yes, because people, coming yeah. out in 1987, and I sure as shit ain't femme. Right. right. Yes. No, I get that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. For but sure. I was remembering you were saying that you uh, related to the idea of being confused for a dude, but you don't. Oh, it happens to me all for real the time, all the time. Uh, uh, someone says, "Sir," to me at least uh, four times a week. And, and does that moment happen like she talks about in the net where- Oh, absolutely. They get they, angry. They themselves? Yes, and what happens is there is a, in fact, that I really did relate to that. I, I once had someone yell at me to get out of a bathroom when I was in a one-piece bathing suit. And by the way, I have a rack. Like, I was just like, I'm standing here and I don't have a towel around me. Like, look up and down. All you see is my hair. That really, I have very short hair and that was all she saw. And, um, and the thing that she talks about that I think- in that moment, the part that resonated for me is that when people catch themselves, they get angry. They get angry at you. <laughs> and that's where it becomes crazy and feels unsafe. Like it isn't just a small moment in that moment when someone starts to feel anger about yes. your presentation. No, I mean, I've, uh, in the last couple of years, because Dave and I, you know, yes, so you've character. created a character that is so important, and I'm so grateful that you but, but that you have that. Thank you. But because of that, we talked to Asia a lot yeah, about yeah. these yeah these moments moments and questions yeah. and how people process it. And um, but let's go backwards because okay. um, as successful and famous as you are in your world, you're not famous in, in the real world. The, in well, no, it's the real world. Yes, but you know. Um, in the I same... tend to ask people, do you have children? Right. No, because you're a huge big deal to them. But if, you know, it's one of those things. Uh, for years, I relate to it. I mean, I was a uh, very famous to poker players. So, yes. and nobody else knew the hell I was. Yeah. So, I completely un understand it. But, so I think it's, it's fair to go back and talk about how you got here and your path, you yeah. know? So, can you just describe your childhood, like, where you grew up, what your early years were like? How you fit into like, I'm really interested, having just watched 8th Grade, which is my favorite movie. I haven't seen it yet. I'm so excited. You have to yeah. go and take your son. Is how old? He's 12. Yeah. Go and take your son. Can't wait. Um, but like, how did you fit in the social structure as a young kid and then in getting up toward high school? Like, where'd you grow up? 
Uh, I was born in Manhattan, um, spent time in Boston in sort of um, JP and Roslindale. Uh, my, I'm, I'm the child of, uh, I'm second generation American with two Irish grandparents. Um, and then we moved to Connecticut, and I actually went to junior high and high school in Greenwich, Connecticut. Which, which, which high school? I went to Greenwich High, um, which in many ways I'm incredibly grateful for because, boy, do you see what it is to go to a public school that actually has pi- private school money. Like, the resources and the teachers that I had there were extraordinary, so I will never um, sort of shit on it in that way. Uh, but it was, I I was very uncomfortable with who I was. It was, um, I graduated in 1987. Um, I came out in, uh, I, I I think in 1988, my freshman year of college. Um, at at NYU? uh, No, at BU. I actually went to BU first. Um, I, I failed out of college in one semester. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. That's actually an achievement. No, it is actually. When you come home for that very first Christmas break and everyone's like, oh my God, and this and this and this. And I'm like, no, I've already been (laughs) I'm, I'm out. done. I'm out. Um, and then hilariously actually went back to BU uh, and, and was accepted as an actor into the conservatory there um, with like Peter Page and um, Krista Vernoff. Like we were all in this small program together. But um, but they, they in, on the application, it, there was a question, have you ever uh, attended BU before, but it was before computers. <laughs> and I remember really thinking like, is anyone ever going to go through the files? And I checked no. And I, uh, so I went to BU for two and a half years. Then I went to NYU. Um, but I, you know, I never had a date in high school. Um, I knew there was something fundamentally wrong about with me, a uh, different about me. W- were you, did you have friends? Um, I think my perception of myself is is still, and I think I'm still working with the perception of myself. I think I had friends, but I don't think I had intimates. Um, there was one place that saved me, and it was a summer camp um, called Brownledge Camp in uh, Burlington, Vermont. Um, and that was the place that every summer I went, and I was just as odd there as I was anyplace else. Like I, I my second summer when I kind of started to like spread my wings, my best friend and I used to walk around pretending we were Quasimodo. Great. Um, yeah, totally. Like, were you the hump? Um, uh, we we both did humped and like pulled our le- like we were. Um, I guess we were compete. We were we were duo quasimodos, but some, for some reason that place accepted us. Really accepted us, and I still have incredibly deep friendships from that place. And Is I she do still think, your friend? yeah, oh yeah, my best friends from then are still my friend. Um, I. I, I think I think of that place as kind of saving me because I felt like an incredible outsider. And of course, I write to the sense of what it is to be on the outside. Um, and I am, you know, queer kids feel that way today. But certainly back then, like there was nothing to look at. Ellen wasn't out yet. Elton John wasn't out yet. Uh, the first time I ever saw myself on screen, if you want to know about representation, was literally Cher in Silkwood. <laughs> and, you know, that's the image you want to take away is, uh, even though the scrubbing of the showers the wasn't that, yeah. but like that's kind of of your association with that with that movie that was the first time and that was like my stomach went oh what the what is that i'm that kind of shut it down and then then you know look if you i'm on the far end of the kinsey scale um i, I always like to play a game with my friends if it was like 1925 uh would you marry the guy and a couple of times get drunk and try to make a pass on the cute uh, mom next door would you uh, become a nun would you become a spinster who didn't have financial means or would you find your way to san francisco or the village and most of my friends, being really honest, would not have found them their way to the village. I clearly was going to the village. Right. But that's who you were. Yeah, I could, I, there was and no did, version. So did that question, though, um, did the fact that you were still in the closet, were you in the closet to yourself? 
Well, I mean, I was 18. I wasn't in the closet. Like, there, what you didn't even, you barely knew those terms in 86, 85. But there is the question I'm asking is about being comfortable in your own skin. That, it has been very hard for me to be comfortable in my own skin. And I think that's funny for because I, I have a very big energy and I know I do. And I, and I project uber confidence. And there's at this point, and it's taken me a long time to get here, I would say 70% of my brain is pure confidence. Every time I go to a big award show, even though I now wear really fucking awesome suits, um, I, I, feel, I, feel, I feel weird. And which is why I spend so much money on my Paul Smith suits, right? So that I can, like, I'm sure. still trying to find that space. I'm sitting here looking at you trying to think when you said the thing about nobody being out. And I'm like, Michael Stipe wasn't quite out yet. No, no, no. And no, Indigo, Indigo Girls were two years later. They were yes. 89 or something like that. I'm, that, I'm trying that's to... Ex that's um, exactly right. I, I mean, there was a... That was the understanding back then was you basically just, uh, if you acknowledged it, you were supposed to keep it to yourself. That was really the era it was. Um, and I had a hard time masking. Look, I look like I'm in drag if I'm wearing a dress. No matter what <laughs> I, like, no matter what I do. And that changes your ability to do, like, I don't have that other side. I just don't. But, how, but I think that's, in the end, has did, been a gift. How did you express, so did you start writing when you were in high school a little bit? Were you, uh, did they know you were smart? Did you, were there, was there an area in which you excelled? Because why did you fail out of, like, what? They, Talk about that yeah. part of who you were. So, they, so I was a, I was a, so first of all, my brother is, um, my brother is like a genius. He went to MIT. Um, he went to the Tokyo Institute of Technology and got a master's in engineering in the Japanese language. He also went to, you know, like he's that guy. And I was always comparing myself with that Your guy. Your older brother. My older brother. And also an athlete and all those things. Um, and I, I, I was absolutely terrible in the things I was terrible in and would not put a single bit of effort. And when I think about the people who just had moments where they changed my life, I had a guidance counselor who my senior year in high school um, knew that I had already failed algebra, basic algebra, but the thing you had to do to get into any of the colleges that I was going to, and I had been accepted to BU, in fact, it was the only, I did not ex get accepted to to, to UConn, which was my state school, which back then you used to get, right? Um, because my grades were so all over the place. Your the high school only, grades were so strange. So strange. I only got into the place I interviewed, sure. which was BU. Um, and But if I didn't graduate uh, basic algebra, I was supposed to not be able to matriculate and therefore uh, go to BU. And a guidance counselor without ever having spoken to me, and I was clearly heading towards failing again, it's my senior year, what am I still doing in this class, um, had called BU and had a whole negotiation with them and got me exempt and didn't tell me any of this. And I, I never felt like I was particularly close with this woman, which is those moments where somebody saw something in me. And um, and I remember she came in the middle of math class and like knocked on the door and was the thing like, Christine, can we see you? And I was like, oh, fuck, I'm in trouble. And I packed up my stuff and I went out and she said, you are done with this class. And I was like, no, I, I swear I could pass. And she was like, no, you don't. I've spoken to BU. They're going to waive your need to finish this class. You are now not enrolled in this class. You will not fail. You are no longer enrolled. That is gone from the computer. Take your stuff and go. And it was... Oh, you must have floated out of there. Oh, it was the best thing ever. Um, it yeah, was fantastic. I so I was like too. terrible at some things, great at some things. Uh, I went to college. I, I had a really hard time. And I think, again, it was self-esteem issues. Um, figuring out if I was a slacker or someone with massive ambition. Um, and it turns out the place I figured that out was Seattle. <laughs> I went to Seattle at the height of the grunge phase, and I was like, oh, 
oh, I have ambition. I'm right. not a slight. Like, I couldn't stand it. The process. When did you go to of, Seattle? Uh, I was there when Kurt killed himself. And I will tell you how I remember that day, which is, of course, loved his music. But, like, I was walking to work one day. And um, they had put social workers out on the street during that, on that day, to make sure that people were okay. And they stopped me and they said, hey, we want to make sure you're feeling okay. Is there anything you need to talk about with Kurt's death? And I was like, oh, Oh no, um, I'm wearing flannel, but this is oh, because I'm so gay funny. and not because I'm um, necessarily like grunge. I mean, I like his music and I'm really like, I'm bummed, but I'm okay. <laughs> like, that was why did you, wait, why, wait, why well, hold Seattle? on, I want to say one thing. Why, why did you fail out of BU? What happened? Was it just literally, you were partying? Yes, I was partying. And, you, I, you and, I, and I was very, like, because of course I was clocking and what I thought was going to happen was that I was going to get... Um, uh, reprimand. Like, I, that's what I thought. I don't want to glibly move past this one thing, though, because yeah. uh, people who listen. So often people who would have an experience like that would let it sort of define their answer that question for them, and they would feel like a loser. So yeah. what did you do to not feel like a loser? Like, I had this trick, too, where if I failed a class or fucked up in a class, I would always be like, well, it's them not me. I was able to because I had, like, great parents who were told me I was smart. Right. And so I just was like, fuck it. And but I most did not people feel get crushed smart. by this stuff. So yes. what, how did you not get crushed My by it? My great balance in life is that I did not, I would say I did not know I was smart until um, I was about 25, 26, 27. Did not know. Like really didn't. Then Struggled with it. Um, I don't know. I went back to Boston. I wasn't going to go home. I, that felt like too much of a defeat. Although, I, I mean, what I remember is that they called me in my dorm. I thought I was leaving the next day on a train to go home. Sure. And they were like, clean out your dorm. And back then, you know, you couldn't rent a car under 25. Like, I just didn't even know they how to do They must have given do. you warnings that I you ignored. I, that's entirely. That's 100%. I don't remember. Like, and of course, they like, you version. And it's always funny what you don't remember. Because I have one of those memories. Like, I can tell you every story that's important to me or that doesn't, isn't painful. People often ask, like, what was that conversation? like with your parents and I and I'm just like I do not remember telling my parents I mean I obviously did but I do not remember that conversation at all but I went back up to Boston I actually worked on a whale watching ship which was like my happiest job I want to be um I want to be a ferry boat captain that must have helped you when you had to deal with the deadliest catch yeah, thing. no, actually, I'm very, and I'm them. incredibly comfortable out on the water. I did for a while. I was going to become a merchant marine. You're a seaworthy person. Oh, very seaworthy. I'm not I, seaworthy. And, oh, I love, am... love, 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 and I love working ships. Um, I've never gotten over. I'm friends with Kathy Opie, and at one point, she had been um, commissioned to to shoot on one of the big container ships from Japan, Japan over to. And I kept saying, like, can I come with you? Can I? And she was like, I, my assistant's coming. And it turned out that her assistant had. <laughs> <laughs> terrible seasickness the whole time and I was like I could have learned what you needed I don't you think I've ever talked I had one day on a naval destroyer <laughs> yes oh yeah um, the Stimmets or whatever the I one that always they always let no, me no I went out I walked on that one and, yeah. but no we went out I went no out because with, that's the one they take people I, out I went out with Pete yeah. Berg oh yeah on yes, an active yes. live yes. destroyer yes. into the thing and then they uh, they choppered us they choppered yep. us Seahawked us back to yep. And I was never so happy in my life to get on a craft as I was to get on that Seahawk and get off of that ship. No, it's like my happy I, place is so, moody water and and working ships. I, mean, I love to sail and all that, but like, yeah. I, I want to go back to the ambition thing when you were there at BU. Yeah. So you're at BU, you're not caring about school. Some part of it's not connecting with you. You're yes. having fun. You're out 
and like living your life. Out living my life. Starting the first time you're dating people, really? Yeah. And I, I, with the person that I moved in with, I mean, I have a weird story where like I got assigned a roommate. I wrote her this like very writerly, long, stupid, like charming letter. And then I got back this long, stupid, charming letter saying, be you fucked up again. I'm not, I'm not living on campus. There are 35,000 students there. So of course I'm never going to meet her. But for some reason she ends up describing um, the apartment she's moving into in great detail and this whole funny letter. And three days later, I meet the person I was supposed to be roommates with. On the day that I got kicked out, I went to get food at the at the cafeteria and I sat down with that person and it just like, went, here's what's happened and I don't, I don't want to go home. I don't know what to do. And she said, well, I have an extra half of a bed. <laughs> And uh, and I did. I moved into the apartment that she had described to me in the letter. That's the, just one of those things. Like I don't know if I believe in that stuff, but it's but it makes a great story. And and that was my first girlfriend. She became your girlfriend. Then. She became my girlfriend because um, you know we were sleeping in a bed together. I mean, what what else are you gonna do? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, and and our and our other roommate was sleeping in a um, in a hammock in the living room because we had so many mice and cockroaches. We lived above the Falafel King in uh, in Boston by Played Against Sam's. Um, and and I mean I was. In Boston until 88. But never, so, never eat that food, I will just tell you, because... I like that place, Cappy's, that was yeah, right there, yeah, that yeah. had pizza and weird bug juice, kind <laughs> just, of. Just anything that did not uh, involve anything in our building, because we knew what the runoff was. Oh, gross. She did not sleep on the floor for that reason. Yeah. Well, but so, so you... What are you thinking at that time? You're gonna? Did you tell your parents you 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 failed out? I mean, I I, I know you don't remember. I don't remember, but to yes, parents. I believe I did. Um, and then and did you come out to them right then too? I had I came out uh, to them probably the next year. A little bit of a forced thing. I mean, whether I meant it or not, uh, that girlfriend and I were now living in a new place with a bunch of people, and I was at rehearsal because now I was an acting student, and my parents were coming. And I had a room that they were paying for, but there was no bed in that room. And we were we had the plan all set up, but somehow I did not get home. And it was the thing where I got home and my parents were already in the living room. And by the end of that trip, my parents asked me, um, and I told them, and it was very hard. I mean, this was 87, 88. It was very hard. My parents thought my life was over. I already was someone who was struggling in weird ways. Like, I don't think anyone could see that there was a trajectory where I was going to be okay. Where, yeah, because it's not like you were like, hey, I'm out, yeah, but no. I'm, I'm achieving like my older brother is. No. You no, weren't. I was, I was really not. And, and then, Did you, you know, have a sense of panic personally at all? Yes, I had a lot of panic. I, I, had, I had very, I had a real panic problem. I used to throw up before every class, before every interview. Um, and it's actually why, one of the reasons I stopped performing, that and like, um, I, there wasn't a place for me at that point. I, I am very realistic. And at the end of the day, I think I loved storytelling. I loved, I loved the theater, like real theater. I loved all of those things. I probably was always a writer, um, but I didn't quite know what that path was. And you weren't was. writing yet. I wasn't writing yet. And I will tell you, it took me a long time to feel confidence writing because it was the thing I wanted the most. And I think that's the key of me is I did have great ambition and I had great fear and I wasn't, I didn't feel, I didn't feel smart enough. I didn't feel good enough. I didn't feel cool enough. I always felt kind of on the outside and I was so afraid of failing at those things. Um, That's what stops so many people so from many writing people. is the yes. wanting to be really great at it right away. hundred percent. like if you can't be great at it right away, you'll never be That's great right. at it. That's right. And then if it's the thing you want so badly, you're a fraud. Yes. And it's awful. I mean, it's what and stopped it's, me until I was 30, obviously. That's right. So... I and I was 27, 28, I think. And I think, uh, look, my, the greatest, you know, it turns out I have an incredible capacity 
to remember the feelings I had as a child in a universal way and write them in a way that seems to both delight children and remind parents of a certain thing. But I kind of fell into doing kids TV. And I will tell you that in my head, I'm being really honest. What I do is no less hard and everyone thinks they can do it. But I thought it of it as slightly lesser than sure the ambition the th to write a great play the thing and so comes... it allowed me start to start writing in the beginning because i was like well this is children's stuff it isn't what i want to write the great you know play on broadway we, we all defeat ourselves uh often because the thing that comes naturally to us we devalue yes yes and so for a long time uh you know i, I would devalue the ability i had to speak, to talk, yeah. to walk That's into a right. room and sell something. Yeah. I felt like there was no skill involved in any of that stuff. Right. Because, because it wasn't something it hard was for innate. you. That's right. And, um, and similarly, I mean, some part of the fact that I knew I could control tone on a page. Yes. Uh, I felt like, well, that's something, but, but the real thing, the grit, how am I going to develop the grit to really like produce this work? Because my scholastic record suggests that I would never be able to <laughs> yes, have the grit yes, yes. as yours did. Yeah, that's right. And, and so tell, walk us through like the the year and a half. So you're in Boston living with this girl. And then how do you make your way to NYU? And, and once you were in NYU, were you major? Were you then dealing with film and TV? So what happened was I was at BU. BU has an incredibly hard cut system. So it's a very small... Yeah, the conservatory that, I was in the conservatory. Yeah. Um, and I was with a lot of people you now see on TV. Um, and I, uh, the junior year, like they cut people freshman year, they cut people sophomore year, and junior year was the big year where you finally were like free. And I definitely had the thing where I knew this wasn't right for me, but I couldn't leave without you knowing whether they were coming. Year. And here's the funny thing, what ended up happening was uh, they kept me on probation um, into my junior year, which I just philosophically, the amount of money you're paying, and like, like the idea that everyone else is now free and I was still on probation for another fucking semester. And part of it had, they actually, look, these were different times and I don't necessarily blame them, but they told me I was too butch. So like when I use that language, like I had professors telling me I was too butch to get cast and to change myself, which I was having a really hard time figuring out how to deal with. Um, but I had, and this may be the beginning of it, I had some, I have an ability to be very fucking bold. And for someone who also has a lot of fear that people don't see, they see those moments. So I was sitting in this evaluation. I've been there for two and a half years. Also remember there's a whole extra semester that yeah. my parents have paid for that back at the liberal arts college. They are telling me blah, blah, blah. And all and halfway through, and these are these evaluations. You sit there for four, uh, 40 minutes with all of your professors and, um, and, uh, my my ears just zone out as they tell me that I'm still on probation. And about 10 minutes later, I just I just all of a sudden turned to them. I don't know what they said in those 10 minutes. And I said, I'm so sorry, you guys can stop. And they were like, what are you talking about? And I said, um, you can stop talking because I don't need to hear, I'm leaving. And they were like, what are, what are you talking about? And I was like, no, I, I quit. I, I, I'm walking out the door and I'm never coming back here. So thank you very much. And to be honest, they so completely didn't believe that I had meant it that they registered me for the next semester, which was a really hard thing to get out of, by the way. <laughs> uh, it was very easy to... to but in that yeah. instant, you had the full thought? I had the I'm full done. thought. It had never occurred I'm not to an me actor. that I was not. You had the thought I'm not. I don't know if I had fully thought I'm not an actor, but I knew the program wasn't for me. I knew this was unjust. 
I have some issues with injustice. I knew it was just fucking wrong. And and it was midway through a semester. We're like, so imagine, once again, it's the second time. Or I, I thought, and it, it was another girlfriend who I was with who was just waiting for me and we were supposed to like get in the car, leave all our stuff in our apartment. And in fact, I happened to run into my roommate, this lovely man named Aaron Doyle, sitting in the thing. And I was like, by the way, I just, I'm not coming back. Huh. I'll figure it out, but my shit will be gone by the time. And like, I go back and my girlfriend who's up visiting and we're like heading back to the city, uh, this city, and and I, and I show up and I was like, I'm so sorry, I know we're supposed to leave in 20 minutes, but we have to pack up all my stuff. I'd been living there for like two years. And we did. We packed up my shit and I left. To do what? Uh, I had no idea. So once again, I was kind of back. Um, I watched every second of the Menendez trial because that was on at were night at the time. Were you working a job? How were you supporting yourself? Um, Did your parents help a little? I, I Thing, I think I moved back in when was the one time I moved back in with my parents in that right. period of time. But I had a girlfriend in the city, and so I was spending I was spending most of my time away. I think I might have worked at my mom's toy store. Like a lot of that stuff is fuzzy. I did weird shit. I like I temped at a factory in like Troy, New York. I don't know. I did weird shit. And was show business still on your mind? I always knew what I wanted to do. I was just so afraid to do it. How would and you then, have defined it then? Sorry. How would you have defined success then? Winning a Tony. That's what you wanted to do. You wanted to be a playwright. I wanted to be. You a wanted playwright. to write musicals. Both. Both. Right. I grew up, and I'm very lucky, and I'm so grateful to my mom. I had a mother who raised me with the high arts. I, and that's a city kid thing, right? But there were many seasons um, through junior high and high school where I saw every single show, except for nine because there was nudity. I saw every single show on Broadway, every one. Um, that's amazing. Incredible. I saw uh, Bershnikov dance. My, I went to the ballet. I went to the opera. I went to... Um, chamber orchestras, all and I and I love it all. I right. love you it all. You were taken with all of it. Yes, and so and so again, I judge myself for doing kids' television but, and but animation. But also that you grew up right? in a toy store is amazing. Yeah, totally. Like I all mean, that of you that grew up stuff. in a toy yeah. store, obviously. Yeah. You it around kids to, getting stuff all the time. Yeah, yeah, and kids, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and you, watching thing. the dynamics of kids and their parents. Totally, totally. Like, there's no way that yeah. doesn't impact what you do a hundred percent although i do think more it's like there's there's a wound for most good people who write for kids there is a wound of course and and more than anything the people who are good at writing for kids um like who i consider writers who happen to write for kids versus sort of educators who write for kids and that's a kind of a different class a don't see a box when they're writing for kids and, and a lot of people do but they have some access to some feelings that are very real and they and they are writing for themselves. Wait, Shelby wanted to ask you that qu this yeah. question about the box thing. Uh, you wrote that question to me about, um, I'll, I'll ask you it. Uh, you, when you say that, because you said that somewhere else, yeah, the yeah, box yeah. thing, I read the quote. Yep. Uh, what do you mean by that? How do you, how do you, it isn't, you're talking about the craft now and you're talking about yeah. people think they have to like dumb it down. Is that the box? Yes. They, they, all they can see are the jokes they can't tell. And I, uh, it, to, I always, re, uh, you know, relate it to um, uh, the comedians who decide not to work blue, right? And they talk about that as a challenge that actually gives them sort of something to bump up against that yeah. allows them to. And so for whatever reason, I'm never seeing what I can't do. I, um, I was telling someone the other day, like, I, 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 and this sounds so stupid, but I was reading Night for the first time at the same time that I was reading. Ellie White Sells. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, who I used to serve in the restaurant at a, at BU. Um, 
And and I, at the same time, I was writing a Halloween episode for Little Bill. And I was, at the end of the day, I, I chose to write about fear. There were other ways I could have gone with that story. And I was really writing in a very real way the Your things Holocaust I was story. feeling. Yes, exactly. Like, through that. Um, you know, I'm always trying to delight myself. I'm trying to push myself. Like, I have sequences that are the R-Town, you know, goodbye sequence done by a stuffed snowman. Like, do other people, sometimes people pick the shit up. The mere reference to Our Town can stop this entire <laughs> thing because it makes me every time it makes me cry ever since i saw david yeah, Crom, totally. I, it's my favorite yeah. from when i was a little yeah. kid but then seeing david cromer's version but okay uh, do you I, know I, that I young kids today don't know who spalding gray is um I, I i was just on a storytelling trip to israel which is a whole other story but um i kept talking about i always talk about spalding gray's uh uh, sort of definition that storytelling is telling the last time you told the story and not the initial event, especially for a true storyteller. You're you're always tweaking that thing. And I was horrified to find out that young people do not know who's Paul Gray at a, is. I met him at a party once, and it mm. was amazing. I just shook his hand, but it was incredible. Yeah. Maybe two years before he died. Um, but I w- the, So is, NYU? Wait, no, this is for the end oh, of yeah. the conversation. But when you just said that, it made me think, um, let's bring it up now. Because... In terms of pushing the box, you know, you did a thing last year where you made an episode uh, that of your show that what, the target audience for show is how old? Uh, in theory, two to six. That's yeah. right. So you're yeah, making yeah, yeah, a two yeah, to yeah. six year old show. Yep, yep, yep. That most kids watch with their moms, or yep. a lot of kids watch with their moms. For sure, for sure. And all over, and it's on Disney, yep. and they watch it all over the country. Yep. So not New York, L.A., Chicago, but no. everywhere. And it's Disney. Disney and means Disney. something. And a few things. Uh, to talk about about this. Yep. So you you wrote an episode uh, that featured two moms. Yep. Uh, and it was a useful episode uh, because it wasn't not just about the two moms. In fact, you didn't emphasize that. That's just the family you depicted. That's right. Um, and solving this problem of what to do in an emergency right. or whatever. So if you get right. separated, you have a plan and yep. all that stuff. And can, can you talk about uh, deciding to do that, but also... You were very wise in your approach to this. You had a lot of support throughout the industry that sort of buttressed problems that might have happened. Can you just talk about how you thought about using community uh, and about the reasons you did that? I don't want to end this. We have time, but I want to cover this. I thought it was a heroic thing you did and heroic the way that you handled it. Well, look, I mean, uh, doing a same-sex family is depicting my own family. And here I've spent 20 years, um, uh, you know, very, very, very concerned with um, with diversity, with caring about what images are on screen. And, and why? Because I know what it's like to not see myself on screen. But what's funny is I have, up until now, never been able to depict my own family in the work that I'm doing. And therefore, I do things like create a show where I have a black uh, girl as the lead because I understand how important that is. And that was a way that well, I could... The show's already address. groundbreaking for that reason. Yeah. That's right. Um and I always think, you know, the conversation has changed and, and, and now I hope that there are black writers who are going to be making the next Doc McStuffins. I don't, I, that's not my role anymore. But I do think people, I always talk about like the first time I was at the NAACP Awards and we won and I, I'm the person who goes up on stage and I made a joke and I said like, I am not who you expected to be standing here. Um, which a, with the right thing to do is to address it Im- immediately. But also I think you look at me and know I don't, I have not walked through this life, um, uh, w- you unscathed. know, unscathed. 
saved that I do, I am judged as I walk into a place. And so um, I, 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 I do this from a very pure place, try to find ways to, to, to highlight other people's stories. But I had not been able to tell my own. Um, and I had actually asked a few times and been told no. And, and they weren't, you know, the different networks were not ready um, to, to, to make that stand. And we all remember there was, a, there was an episode uh, done in my career. So I remember it. I'm scarred by it. Postcards um, from uh, postcards from Buster, and they had done a same-sex family, same thing, very in the background, um, and many PBS cancel show uh, channels. Canceled that show. Arthur got canceled. Uh, it, it was postcards from Buster, um, and it oh. was and it was it was like Buster wasn't yes, a character. It, from I think, Arthur? and then there was like a live action piece okay. of it that they did as a separate thing. Anyway, so we all kind of remember that and are very gun shy about it. Oh, because that show got canceled in lots of places. In a lot of places, right? So we've always kind of carried that, and I understood that you know for a long time. I it's it's the funny thing where I'm the one who often was gun shy. I remember very early and you're on the boss doing of your show. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, about this one thing, which was, and I'm gun shy about nothing else. Um, so we finally, I finally got permission to do it. I waited until after DOMA, and I really went and said, like, I am ready to, I don't want to, I'm not going to stop, I'm not going to do press anymore where I talk about the importance of seeing images of yourself if I can't be able to say that I've made an attempt to Who tell do you my go own. To to do this? Uh, I went to someone very high up at, high Disney, up at Disney, and I'm it saying- had to be a larger conversation at Disney, and I understood that. Um, and I said, you know, at that point I was like, my marriage is legal, just like everyone else's, everywhere in the country, now is the moment. And I know that, that these are people who believe in these things, and so, uh, so anyway, they, uh, they decided to do the episode, um, and, you know, for me, uh, I wanted to make sure that it couldn't get canceled, and so I went to find... Um, two actresses who would play the role that would allow, that would sort of kind of hold everyone's Brilliant. feet to the fire. And Brilliant. so I had I asked Wanda Sykes, who was in in a heartbeat, and who I now have been working did with. You for the last couple of years. Did you know her before? I did not know her before, but now she's a regular did on my show. Did you go through show. an agent, or did you find a way to I her? I think we went through an agent with her, and uh, and she said yes right away. She was great. in, and it turned out, you know her kids watched Doc, so she knew oh, she knew great. what the show was, and then what we were doing. So that was fantastic. Um, and then we went to Portia de Rossi, and um, and she was absolutely absolutely delightful and in and I kind of just knew like I didn't want voiceover actors to do it because I think it's it was it would be easy to kind of like yeah you wanted Wanda to have a microphone out in the world yeah I just wanted I just wanted Disney to want to put it on the air um and um and here's the thing I but I know there's also a lot of support in the artistic community for you online a hundred percent and here's what I will say is that I I, at some point I got impatient with Disney and I and I kind of was like it's not gonna be a big deal like it wasn't a big deal when Nickelodeon did it and the truth is, they were right. It, it, you know, it had its it had its big flare up, and they were right. And it's Disney. And here's the thing: we've done 240 episodes, um, and it's one family, and it's not about that. So it's still such a small sliver of something. But hopefully, it just. I always did thought you get of canceled it as, anywhere? Uh, we did not get canceled anywhere. No. And there certainly was a lot of like there was a lot of focus, and you know there was a lot of Breitbart focus on me. That that stuff is uncomfortable, but so be it. Um, but I'm really proud of Disney, and they were right. It was like it was a bigger like they. But you they were right. Said, I mean, they were right, but you were right. hundred percent. That you had to do it. Yes, I think we needed to and, do it. And, and who 
you and served, you see, oh, who you served was the kids who lived with two right. moms and two dads. And you, the who parents were moved, and the kids were incredible. I mean, they even the people like we we didn't really pre, the, uh, the, uh, you know, the impact, promote it, and people just went. <gasps> the impact of, of children's television that works hard to yes. do it well. Yes. So like, my daughter's, I don't want to be overly melodramatic, but. My daughter's life was, if not saved, markedly improved because she was watching an episode of Arthur and they were talking about dyslexia and she came right. to us and she said, this is what I have. Right. And from that, we were able to get, immediately get her- That's unbelievable. The right, yeah, because the school didn't figure it out she was so verbally right. gifted. Right. So nobody knew, but she knew. And then was tested and it was clearly it. And that's because they that's did amazing. the show. Have you seen, uh, there's something going around online right now because Sesame Street has done a, an autistic character as a running storyline. And there was a thing online where mom posted that her little kid, that her kid went to play with a kid who was clearly acting differently at the park and and was autistic. And the mom said, you know, you have to, and the kid said, no, I know, I've seen it on Sesame Street. Oh, that's Street, great. And like went and played oh, with I them. I love that, that's so And that's moving. those things like, they're real. The depiction of Doc as a as a doctor, as an African-American doctor, um, first of all, we've had, we had so many doctors who have told us, black female doctors who tell us there's pre-Doc McStuffins, post-Doc McStuffins, pre, they think they're a nurse, wow. and post, they know they're a doctor. doctor. Um, but also, there was a Forbes thing with it that suddenly uh, the number one thing that girls from the age of something like six to this. whatever um, want to be doctors. And and I mean, you hate to be like, well, I think that's because of us. No, but it's, like, it's because of us. It's, it's because, the West Wing effect, but for that's kids exactly, with doctors, yeah. the same way and, that made which it. is which is STEM, and which is also just the aspiration to be in the one percent, you know, and and that's. Uh, that's really we have so much power and anyone who goes into this business and gets that platform who doesn't and here's the thing even if you just want to look at it as a selfish thing you feel so good in a world that that seems like it is crumbling just yes. a tiny bit more every day when you know that you go to work and actually well, do something well, so that you is, didn't do that it less necessarily you wanted to make a successful show and this was like 100%. what got you but because I, I mean dave and i weren't setting out to change anything with taylor the role of Taylor. We yep. just wanted to tell the story because well, we'd seen it in the world. Here's the thing I always say about Doc. Um, it will be remembered for for her being a doctor. It'll be remembered for the medical stuff. It'll be remembered for the mom being a doctor. It'll be remembered for her being black. It's not why it works. It works because it's, it's every kid's wish fulfillment to talk to their toys and their toys talk back. And that's what I say to everyone. Like, find the great story. You tell that great story. Then find the ways that you're putting in stuff that yeah, matters. Stuff. But don't start with the good stuff. You tell me that you're doing the story about the issue you're so right i'm no, no i'm not no. interested and also you're not gonna you look it was important that doc made money because it opened up the what ability for Wilder? everyone else billy wilder say if you want to send me a message go to western union like yeah. Yeah, tell me the story that's exactly like, right i think that was billy wilder okay but but let's talk about how you broke in okay so tell the story of where you were in your life and how you broke in to first just tell it in a narrative first yep. entertainment but then how you got yourself into children's TV and got your own show going. It really started uh, with children's TV. So basically, I was um, I had come to NYU. I went to the Gallatin division. I was working in arts oh, management. Great. I worked at Mabu Mines. I used to sit with a desk facing, literally facing Ruth Malachek all day, um, which was 
fucking amazing. Um, and uh, I graduated from there. I went to Seattle. I realized I had ambition. I came back to New York. I started working at the creative arts team, which is was housed at the time on, at NYU. Um, so I was working on the NYU campus. There was some kind of paperwork mistake, and I had been coded as faculty. So suddenly I got classes, even though I was an office manager. So I started a journalism master's. Um, and I love politics, and I love all of that stuff. But um, partway through, there was a guy who worked there who one day came to me and he said, um, he said two things. He, I have a job for you. He was an actor and he said, I've heard about a job at Sesame Street. It's an intern, sorry, an internship. It was very specifically an internship and I was 27 and only a 27 year old thinks they're too old uh, to start their life anew. Um, but so I did think that. Um, and then he said, I'm moving out of New York and I have an apartment and the apartment is People on. People are always giving you apartments and I beds. I know. It's crazy. So he, but wait, this is a good story. So he, he had an apartment on 50th street between 9th and 10th. It was rent stabilized. Um, and he said, well, you can definitely get it because I'm, I'm subletting it. Um, but the guy can't take it back over because he's in prison. <laughs> So you have to t accept a couple of um, collect phone calls, but if you do that That's and we can great. convince him. So it was $300 a month. Now, it had plywood floors. It had holes to the outside. It was a piece of fucking shit. But for $300 a month, I could afford to go take the internship. And we won't even get into the few months later when the guy got out of prison and kept calling me and saying, I'm feeling very nostalgic about that apartment. And I would be like, this piece of shit where you're arrested from? So clearly there was cocaine under the floorboards, which I chose not to um, open up and find out did what you was leave or you stayed no did I stayed and um, he didn't come take it I have a feeling he did I, this is my narrative my narrative is that he asked and asked and asked to come see the place and that he came and took the shit and that it was probably gone um, anyway so that apartment afforded me the classic like back then you could still figure out things like that but the, you do have to have some money to afford I went and became um, an, uh, uh, an intern at Sesame I was then hired in the international department. I was very quickly sent to Mexico to work on the Mexican Sesame Street Plaza Sesamo. I worked in Mexico City. And then they put me in charge of the theme park in Monterey, Mexico. I had no idea what I was doing. And the guy was so lovely. And he loved to show me the things he was fixing on his own. And I would be like, oh, don't tell me. Oh, my God, don't show me your Elmo that you made. You're not supposed to. Like, oh, don't show so me. Funny. And it was, it was all fine until he showed me um, how they were fixing the roller coaster by themselves. And I was like, well, now I have to tell someone. Right. Uh, so then I started taking, I became an associate producer. I started taking over shows. I went to Finland and then I... Um, are you still not writing or are you writing I'm, st at this I'm point? still not writing. But I, they have learned that I have a great facility to work with story. And right. that's why I'm moving up so quickly. I take over the Israeli-Palestinian Sesame Street. It's a whole, that's an hour podcast about how I went to the Middle East with my shaved head and was mistaken for a spy at one point, blah, blah, blah. Um, I come back and I start, I become the executive on a live show that is being done for international, a live Sesame Street show being done for international. And a writer I still know and still work with was writing it. It just wasn't working. And I kept knowing what it should be. And here's another bold moment. We got to the end of it. Um, they had kind of run through all their money. They'd paid the guy like $30,000, $40,000 on this thing. And I made an appointment to go see the vice president, which at that point, you don't make those appointments. I knocked on the door. I went in. I said, look, I know you guys don't know how to come up with the money to figure out how to fix this thing. I think I know how to do it. I want you to give me two weeks to let me write this. And if you don't like what I write, you don't pay me anything. But if you do, you have to pay me something. And it's $1,000. You have to pay me $1,000. And they said, yes. 
And that is the script that they used. And they paid me $1,000. And then you were a writer. And then I was a writer. And then I started, they started to put me into a little bit of a freelance pool. Um, I couldn't write on the show. At the time, they, that was one of those things you couldn't get onto the show. But I started, I wrote the pilot for Sesame English. There were people who were mad about that. There was a guy named Josh Selig who went off to run a company called um, uh, Little Airplane. I wrote a spec. I got an agent right away. And I made the decision to leave the best job I ever had in my life. And that is one of those moments. I had the coolest job. I loved to travel. I was traveling around the world producing Sesame Street. And I knew that if I, if I blinked, it would be 10 years later. I would be, this is, this is how I know myself. I, I would be running the department in 10 years. Yeah. That's what I would be doing. And I would do that for the rest of my life. And I would be super happy. But I wanted to write. And all I ever talked be about was not being just a writer. Happy. And I quit my job because I knew I had to make that kind of bold. So you said job. you were happy, but were you actually happy? I guess I wasn't because I because there was this thing. You, and it you know what it was? It was you, about right? the fact that I didn't know if I was good enough. If like you were that, really a, a writer. Yeah, that if I could really do it. Like yeah. more so than the actual I work at the time. I can relate to this. So I um, so I left and Sesame was great. They gave me a job for a year where in the middle of the night I recut the UK versions of Sesame Street in a donated edit bay that was still the nicest place I've ever worked. And then we would, we would work until like three or four in the morning and I, we would cut all the Zs out and put put Zs in. For the UK version, and then cut it into a half-hour version right. of the show, um, and online editing. So we were supposed to be all like, we were supposed to watch it during the day and figure out a thing, and then we got the editor and I got so good we could be like, pretty sure we're going to need that and that, and we would actually do it on the fly. And so I did no prep, and I would write during the day. I started getting freelance stuff. I became the first freelancer on Blues Clues. By the time I came out of Sesame and Blues Clues, and then started writing, I had this, and then I got very luck. Lucky, I got an Emmy very early for Little Bill. I wrote most of the last two seasons of Little Bill. And, and so did you I feel worked. when you started writing on other people's shows, was it satisfying to write within other people's worlds? Did you- it, it was, and I was a great mimic, which by the way, that's how you get to be, get first get staffed as a writer is being a mimic. Figure out, I mean, I was the kind of person who would actually, I, I, I have a thing where it's kinetic. I feel like I don't know a character until they come out my fingers, not about describing them until I write the draft. I feel rhythms in my fingers um, in, in this whole other way. Uh, so I used to take people's dialogue and actually rewrite it and feel the rhythm of it. Now, I also grew up in a time where we, you apprenticed, you learned the craft, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. And I, it's not the world anymore. You can't tell people, go work for 10 years on staffs and like learn all the different ways to do it before you even try to be a showrunner because they'll miss their opportunity. But I'm really grateful that I grew up in that era. Still, I think in drama, people there are people, yes. who, do, there are people who do it, not... Yeah. Uh, we have our number two on our show, Adam Perlman, who's amazing. He came up on a bunch of different shows, and he's now 35, and he's ready to run a television right. show. Right, But he's, you know, like, But that was a huge thing. I wanted to know that I was ready. I did not pitch a show until I pitched Doc. And at that point... That's the first show I, you pitched? That's yeah, the first I, original show you pitched? Yeah, and I want to say, like, I had seven Emmy nominations and Emmy at the time. I was the person everyone called to run their shows. I wanted, when I pitched a show, to be able to do what I did. Another bold moment, I called, you know, the head of Disney Junior, and I said, I, I, there, was a, there was a budget line for two EPs, and I said, and while we were in development, I also believe in doing it really early, like pre-saying, here's what's going to happen, here's what I want to happen, here's what's going to happen, I'm going to put it in your ear now when it doesn't matter. When this show gets greenlit, you're not going to hire someone else for the other EP position, and I'm going to be the showrunner, and I'm going to spend the entire development time pr proving to you that that's the case. Um, but I waited until I could 
be in a position to do that because I had learned all the parts before and that. Had you had other ideas and then you waited till you had the I'd idea? Had, I'd had some, but boy, that idea, I knew. I was in the shower and I was just like, oh, I will sell it. Either somebody's done this or I will sell it. I don't, you know, you can't know that it's- The whole thing came fully formed to you? Fully formed, including the name. And you know names like that. They never stick. It made it all the way through- um, there was a moment where they wanted to change it, and I actually had to say to them, I remember saying, like, Spon- uh, you know, SpongeBob meant nothing until the show made it mean something, and I promise you Doc McStuffins will mean something, but it won't until we, s- we claim it. And when the show took off and became this yeah, phenomenon... crazy, crazy. How did you... Was it easy for you? Um... It was not easy in the beginning because there were sort there were ways in which uh, there were ways in which I didn't feel fully financially respected. So until that kind of happened, you mean until you renegotiated and decided, yeah. I need to be paid like somebody. I doing just this? I wasn't really participating in the in the in the success of the show. And again, there was how did just you come to fundamental... that? How did you come to that for yourself? That I should be. Uh, you know, I- it was literally that I had no connection to success. There was no nothing um, like your composer. It mattered that it was going to air for for many years, and that it would air. You know, like we don't have residuals in animation, so there wasn't even that base. Like I literally, my pay meant nothing, no difference whether it was successful or not. But my actors did, and my composers did, and again, it came back to a fundamental. Um, injustice, and I and Were I. Were you scared to go and try to renegotiate? Because they obviously had you under contract. Yeah, they did. Um, no, because I actually was ready to walk away, and I will tell you the line in my head as to why I was ready to walk away from the best thing that ever happened to me, and which I loved, I adored, was that I was afraid I was um, uh, that I was making my own bitterness. And I, I used to say that to myself. Ugh. And and I was with, and I know and I'm someone with so many ideas. I was like, I will do it again. I knew I would do it again. How did you do this without making enemies? Because people are scared. I was with a friend yesterday. Yeah. I'll tell you off the thing, but I was with a friend yesterday in a very similar situation. Uh uh and my friend is scared that they're gonna make a big enemy of somebody at their job. You got to be good enough. Yeah. If you're good enough at the job, this yeah, the person work is, is yeah. Uh, this person is um you at know the what? highest level of elite also, at their position. Also they can position. also say no. But they're a woman. This person's a woman and they, look, frightened it is, of it. There's As no, a woman frightened no of being called a bitch and terrible 100%. whereas a dude would just be called a hard hard That's negotiator. Right. But That's so right. you were not afraid of being run down. I knew that I might lose my show. Oh. And that and I was okay with that. And that's where I had to be to be able to have. I also, I, I really, um, and here's the thing. I, I'm a hard, I can be a hard person. I don't think I'm easy for my executives always. I also know that they, they know that I am doing it from pure passion for the work that I care so much. And I think secretly a lot of them are rooting for me and I try to help them root for me. I do signal early on and try to have side conversations to remind them to be the human beings that they are that's in great. the middle of really that smart. thing. And that's really different from the actual thing. But yeah, do I, I have the dinners where I remind them you're a woman too, and you want to see this happen. You know this isn't right. You know that the you know. And, and how long and, did it take um, you to get the deal you wanted? Uh, I, I, I want to say it was about a year. A year. About a year of of uh, there were like there was a there was an interim good yeah, change. Uh-huh. 
Um, and then there was a, and then there was a very good change. And, and also I think Disney junior at the time was becoming a much more of a powerhouse. And they also realized they wanted to be a home for creators and that they had to figure out a bunch of things. And they became the place that people want to be for that, for that reason, because they were ready they were ready to tell the stories so how, in the way they wanted to. and How do you manage everything? Because you're also a mom. Yes. And you're involved with your son. But very much so, yeah. Uh, you had a health crisis in your family last yes. year. Yes. Uh, that I watched you walk through, and you walked through it elegantly, and you were able to rally help from a community of yeah. uh, friends, and you also were uh, incredibly strong and supportive. Yeah. But I, it, how do you not... Uh, how do you stay focused in each task? Because you were, didn't give up. You were still making your two shows. Well, I will say one thing. I was just starting the second show. It was actually the the, the week that sort of the crisis hit, and it was a very dramatic crisis in my family. And Not with all, your child. I no, but say. suddenly, you know, I was living in a hospital um, for a couple of months, and um, what? I, and it was the week I was starting. Like my staff was starting. And here's what I will tell you about Disney, and also giving people an opportunity to do what's right and be yes. good people. Like people want to be good. And I think if you, I, I just believe there's so much good in so many people and we kind of we kind of back ourselves into not letting sure. them be that. And Nancy Cantor um, at Disney Junior, who's been um, my mentor, my friend, my boss, and my champion really, like this is this is a person who's helped me do break a lot of these things in a, in a great way. Um, you know, she was on vacation and someone emailed her and told her what was happening and she um, she called me and said, I don't want you to pick up another phone call from someone from Disney. We will start the show when you are ready. I don't want you to think about the show, not one time, not one way. I'm going to check in with you because I care about what's happening in your family, and that's it. And I actually said to her, but my staff is starting in two weeks, and I can't do that to them. They will end up, and they paid my staff. Oh, that's amazing. Until I was ready, which, you know, is a couple of writers that, because we were just at that beginning point. But it was just one of those moments where... Um, Disney was extraordinary, but it was. But, but yourself, so that's but I also awesome, I, and that's yeah, a, yeah. also a testament to the fact that yeah. you had these relationships with them. Yes, uh, and that's great of her, and that's awesome, and every boss should be like that. But I'm I'm interested in your uh, ability My to compartmentalize um, or to I have focus. An, I have an insane amount of energy. I'm a very fast writer, and as we know. Um, writers, there is no correlation between excellence in writing and the speed at which you do it. And I'm really sorry for the people in TV who are slower. There's a guy I know who's one of the best writers I know who's actually very big in prime time, um, who just is like, it's it's a struggle. Every word is a struggle. And that's a complete, he just ends up spending way more time at the computer. Um, when I know my show, I, I kind of know how to do it. I, I don't bullshit in meetings. I don't over meeting. I, I am absolutely ruthless and like my staff has time to do their work and get home on time. I think we waste so much goddamn time. Do you I'm write certain, in the mornings? Um, no, I kind of write all through the day. I, I work with the Irish a lot, so I spend a lot of the mornings on the phone or answering emails with them before they're gone. I'm also just, that's, it's not the early, I'm not the morning person. But I have a great, I, I always thought one of the reasons I was good in this business was because I had professional ADD. Um, and I actually need all that stimulus. If I have one thing in front of me, I cannot get it done. And yeah. I also get unhappy. I mean, I think right now I'm figuring out what is the limits of what I actually can take in and take on. 
um, and I'll figure out what that is. But, uh, you know, all anyone ever wants is a hit show. And actually, when I really realized what a hit show doc was and that I was going to be on it for years to come, I had a little panic. I was like, oh, God, what? Um, and so thank God they said, yeah, no, we'll give you another show. Like, you can run two at the same time. And I was like, great. Now you, that, that's better for you. Oh, much better. Great. I hope you get 10 of them. Yeah. Chris Nee, thanks for being here. People can find you on Facebook. I'm not on Twitter at? Uh, Chris Dockney. C-H-R-I-S-D-O-C-N-E. And, and Chris is a great follow in these times. That's for sure. Um, and you can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. You can email me, themomabk at gmail.com. Chris, you're an inspiration. Thank you very much. And you are a good friend. Thanks, everybody. Uh, We'll see you soon. Bye.